to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And tonight we consider verses 11 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 11 through 15. The passage that we study tonight has become one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament. Not because, I want to assure you, not because there are a great number of exegetical difficulties with the passage. There is one, at least I find one, in, in verse 15, uh, that, has, uh, that, that bears some discussion with regard to how we're to interpret that. But I want to tell you going into this that the text is fairly straightforward. Uh, there's, there's no special problems with the underlying Greek language. Uh, that's not why it's a controversial passage. The reason it's a controversial passage has more to do with our culture than the passage itself. What is, what is taught in this passage, I want to tell you ahead of time, to remind you ahead of time, is the Word of God. Spoken through the Apostle Paul, not only to the situation that he was ministering to in Ephesus, but I'll show you based upon a timeless truth that he uses to validate these principles, spoken as a principle for believers throughout the church age. I also want to remind you that Paul is speaking to a situation, uh, to situations within the church, within the household of God, as he has said in verse 15 of chapter 3, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and supporter of the truth. Some folks, when they get to this passage, say this is just simply the Apostle Paul's opinion. There are a lot of different things that come up, most of which are very silly. People might say, well, and people do say, the Apostle Paul just didn't care for women. Some people will go further than that. The Apostle Paul hated women. The Apostle Paul had an overbearing mother. It just goes on and on and on with no justification whatsoever. And so they try to dismiss this passage, again, not for exegetical reasons, but simply because it doesn't seem, at least as some understand it, it doesn't seem to fit our culture today. So rather than adapting the culture to the text, in some circles we try to do the opposite and then adapt the text to the culture. One of the most eye-opening things that I had, uh, I think it was my second or third year at Dallas Seminary, was going to the library and, and, have a, and find on the shelves that, that concern the journals, and particularly the journals with regard to hermeneutics, was the feminist hermeneutical journal. I'm thinking, what is a feminist hermeneutic? Well, there are all kinds of hermeneutics. There's, a, there's, a, uh, uh, there's an African or a black hermeneutic now. There's a feminist hermeneutic. Uh, I suppose there's a Doberman Pinscher hermeneutic if we were to, if we were to look far enough. But, but the point is, that's taking cultural norms and forcing them onto the text. I'd like not to do that tonight. What I'd like to do is to try to objectively allow the text to speak to us. And then have us uh, perhaps adjust our thinking or our behavior to what is clearly in the text and not vice versa. Fair enough? Now, as we read through the text, you may, maybe you've not read through this yet and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Well, this is what I'm talking about. Verse 11, let a woman receive instruction with entire submissiveness quietly. Now you see the point? <laughs> okay. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who first, crea was first created, then, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love, and sanctify with self-restraint. You might see now why this doesn't fit the, um, the norm 
of our culture today. In fact, some people might even say this is somewhat politically incorrect. And I'd have to tell you, with all the love of Christ, then something's wrong with our politics. You see? Well, I'll get to that in just a second, Peggy. It, it, uh, um, but we, we need to adjust what, we, what is political rather than adjust the text to match that. You see the point? So now as, as we go through the text, let's consider this. And I brought it up last time, but I want to bring it up again, and I want to keep it before you because there is, there is arrogance, some pride mixed with bitterness, and some anger on the part of some women as they look at this text. At the same time, there's a bit of pride and conceit on the part of some men as they look at this text. Some women have the idea that looking at this text, that somehow the Bible speaks of them being inferior to the male. Well, I mean, after all, if they're supposed to uh, quietly receive submission, not with just, I mean, re- receive instruction, not with just a humble attitude, but with entirely a humble attitude, with entire submissiveness, then uh, doesn't that mean that the woman is somehow inferior to the person that's given authorization to teach? Well, no, it, it doesn't. And at the same time, men don't need to be on their high horse either, thinking that because they have the responsibility, or at least it's the male that the, the, the male gender from which the teacher will come, that that makes the male gender superior to the female gender. It doesn't. In fact. Both male and female were created in the image of Christ, in the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven makes that crystal clear. And did you notice the chapter Genesis one? Didn't take very long for God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal through Moses that principle. And I wonder if perhaps the reason that He didn't reveal it so soon was because He knew how this would be distorted later on. Right from the get go. It's made clear that both male and female are created in the image of God. And because they're both created in the image of God, there is, there is inherent value to both male and female. I said it last time, but I want to review it again before we get into the text itself. And that is, because one has a position of leadership, it does not imply superiority before God. Because one is in a position of submitting to leadership, that does not imply inferiority before God. To say so would actually do great damage to the doctrine of the Trinity. One wonders sometimes why we study doctrines. In fact, in some churches today, it might be, this is a foreign concept to the overwhelming majority of those who are listening to me tonight, so I know I'm preaching to the choir in this sense, but in not just some, but in most churches in the United States today, teaching doctrine is frowned upon. Teaching anything that smacks of systematic theology is frowned upon. The problem with that is, if we don't understand something so basic to systematic theology as the Trinity, we'll never be able to actually understand how this passage should work. Did you know that? You see, the, the Trinity forms the model for the application of this passage. Let me review this for you, if I could, for just a moment. There's an ancient diagram of the Trinity that looks something like this. I know you've seen it before. It's a triangle with circles on each end, the top one representing God the Father, the, the one on this side representing the Son, and this one the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that within the Trinity there is an incredible unity, but there's also diversity, just like there is in a church. There's unity within the church, but there's diversity within the church as well, just like there is in marriage. There's a unity in marriage, but there's also diversity in marriage. 
And in this, this diagram speaks of that because we see that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. However, while there is that distinction, there is unity there as well. So we can at the same time say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. There's unity and diversity within the Trinity. And this same unity and diversity that exists within the Trinity is the model for unity and diversity in our churches, for unity and diversity in our marriages, even in our families. You see how systematic theology forms a foundation for our understanding of everyday activities? It's absurd. It's, it's patently absurd to reject the idea of teaching systematic theology in our churches. Patently absurd. Because you won't have a foundation for even the most simple of the applications. Now, I hope that would settle it. Some would say that if, if one is under the authority or leadership of someone else, that makes them inferior. To say that destroys this diagram of the Trinity, not just the diagram, because that's not the authority, but the, the truth of the Trinity itself. Because that would say that the Father was inferior to the Son because the Father willingly submitted himself to the Son, to the Son willingly submitted himself to the Father's leadership. And we would all say, oh, no, no, no. At least you better say, no, 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 if you understand this doctrine. In the same way, the wife in marriage willingly submits herself to the leadership of her husband. That doesn't mean the husband is superior before God. It doesn't mean the wife is inferior. She's willingly submitting herself to one with whom she is equal. In the same way in churches, you're willingly submitting yourself right now to, to me in my leadership and teaching. That doesn't mean I'm superior to you. One, one day we're going to get to heaven, we'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll see that. <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll see that some of the people that we thought were the spiritual superstars here on earth weren't the spiritual superstars at all. And it's probably going to be a lot of folks who are very anonymous that will be the ones who will be quite famous in heaven. We all have different roles but you have every bit as an opportunity to glorify God as I do. I just have a different role. But believe me, I'm not superior in any way. I'd be the first to tell you. Neither is anyone here who is in ministry superior to anyone else. Now, with that in mind, and with the, with the idea in mind, the, the context, the boundaries on the context well placed, that this passage has, is speaking specifically of life within the local church, with that in mind, let's look at the text again. Let a woman... Quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And then in verse 12, perhaps the most controversial of these passages. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain, uh, but to remain quiet. The same word that was used in verse 11. Regarding participation in the meetings of the local church, Paul taught that... The, taught the women that it was not their role within the body to teach or to exercise authority over men. Now, again, the text is clear. Uh, Paul's words, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mean what they say. Uh, the woman's responsibility is to learn quietly with humility. In fact, although not directly stated here, it's the responsibility of all in the church, in a church setting, in a church academic setting, to learn quietly with humility, whether they're male or female. And I appreciate the fact that, that you're doing that. For if you weren't learning quietly with humility, 
then neither would the person next to you have the opportunity to do that. So this is a challenge, not just for women, although Paul is speaking to women here, but it's a challenge to anyone who is sitting in an academic setting to have a certain amount of humility. You see, without humility, no one's teachable. If you're sitting there tonight thinking, I know a whole lot more than he does, I can't figure out why I'm here, then you wasted your time coming. And maybe you are thinking that. And I would invite you to find some pastor that you can respect and, and, and sit under their ministry because if, that, if, that's the, if that's the kind of arrogant attitude one has, you're not going to be teachable and you're going to get nothing out of it. If we walk in thinking we're above the rest, we're not going to get anything out of it. You know, that's actually happened in, in kind of a warped sort of a way when some of us go to places. And we sit, in, we sit in assemblies and we immediately think before we ever hear the pastor open his mouth, I know more than that guy does. You know what? Chances are you don't. I know people that think that they know more than some of the most famous and most well-known pastors in Houston. Well, I know a whole lot more theology than they do. Chances are you don't. Now, they, they may not choose to teach it in their congregations. Don't mistake that for them not knowing it. That's, that's a flaw that shows our own pride and our own arrogance, and, and it takes away our opportunity to learn something from somebody, even if it's one or two little things. So, uh, that the idea of learning with quietness and humility actually extends to both male and female, although it's specific to the female here. The text does not mean... Now listen carefully, please. The text does not mean that women should surrender their minds and their consciousness to men, but that they should voluntarily take the position of learners in church meetings. The verbs in, in verse 12, teach and exercise authority, are, are in the present tense here. I do not allow a woman to teach present tense, or exercise authority, present tense over a man, but to remain quiet. This would appear to take away the idea that this was simply something for the church at Ephesus. That the women in Ephesus, sometimes you'll hear this, that the women in Ephesus were, were particularly bossy. And that they were giving Timothy a particularly hard time. Uh, that that uh, bossiness was a problem more in that day than it is in this day for, for ladies in the church. So this doesn't apply at all. I'm not going to go down that road very far, but, but just to tell you that that's, that's not a, a cultural reality. There's, there's pride in every generation, uh, just like there should be humility in every generation. So uh, I, I, would, I would point out that these present imperatives do, or verbs that are acting as imperatives, need, need to be understood as having continuing activity. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, this is in a church setting. Did everybody hear that? This is in a church setting. Uh, this, this passage, while very possibly having application to other settings, is not speaking to other settings. So I'm not speaking about other settings tonight here. This is speaking of the church. It's not talking about business. If you happen to have, if you're a male and you have a female for a boss, I would not, if you have any sense at all, I would not take this passage into their boss and say, listen, I can't work for her. I'm a Christian. No, you're a foolish Christian if you do something like that. This is speaking about the local church. Uh, the, the ideas of teaching and exercising authority are not totally separate ideas either. When one teaches, they are exercising authority. 
Right now, you're, you're learning in humility, and I have authority over this classroom setting. You know, I, I get to choose when we started, and I'll, I'll choose when we finish. Um, you know, if I was to say, hey, John, would you check that air conditioner? John's going to check the air conditioner. There's a certain amount of authority that goes along with teaching. There's a certain amount of authority that goes along with song leading. I've been asked, so I'll tell you. Uh, because a song leader tells people to stand up, tells them to sit down, gives them a particular um, cadence, I guess you would, would call that. Is that the right thing to call That, that uh, a, a, a group is to follow. That's why our song leaders are male. Even though in, in the crowd here, even tonight, we may have some females that would be extremely qualified, but because they are exercising authority when they stand before someone, it's my view that, the, the safest view is that that be, be exercised by a male. Now, there are some, and you walk out of here, perhaps you'll read it in a study note somewhere, maybe you, you look something up in a commentary, there are some that would say that just so long as the man is ultimately in authority, for example, let's say the pastor at, at uh, oh, I won't pick any, any place particularly, say First Baptist of, of any particular city, let's say like the, the pastor of First Baptist then authorizes a very famous female Bible teacher, to teach over the, the assembly in general, that, in my view, is not good enough. Because while that person is, is doing the teaching, then, then there are males that are having to submit to that leadership, and I believe that that's unhealthy in a church because I don't believe it's biblical. So we're not going to go with that out. So if somebody just the ultimate, the CEO type, and then they delegate it, um, there may be some truth to some activities within a church with regard to that, but I think it's, um, it's not something that's going to happen here. Now, the harder question is this. What about parachurch ministries? See, that's, that's the gray area here. A parachurch ministry is not a local church ministry, but it's a ministry that's closely associated with a local church. It's not a business. It's in between the church and the local church. Parachurch meaning beside church. Parachurch ministries like seminaries, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, mission groups, uh, College of Biblical Studies, and, and organizations like that. Those aren't churches, but they are parachurch ministries. The question, the, the, the serious question, that's being debated even in those institutions, even now, is how do these rules apply to those institutions? Now, since we are not one of those institutions, we're not going to hash that out. But in my view, if someone was to ask me, I would say the closer that you can follow, if you're going to be a parachurch ministry, the closer you can follow the biblical mandates about a local church, the better you're going to be. Just because you're one step removed, if you're still calling yourself a ministry, it would be wise to handle it in the same way that these ministries do. Now, how do we know that this wasn't just for Ephesus? For that's what some people will say. In fact, those who object... Uh, that's that's the most common objection. This was only for a situation in Ephesus. Timothy was a weak leader. The women were, were running circles around him. So Paul had to, to say this only to Ephesus. And then we would say, well, actually, he was a little stronger with Corinth. But that was a situation in Corinth, too. The women there were, were being really bossy. Well, no, this is, a, this is a universal. And how do we know that? Well, there's a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics means the, the science of interpretation. There's a hermeneutical principle that if, that if a stated fact is validated by a timeless principle, then that adds weight to the stated fact itself being a timeless stated fact. Now let me say, I know that's a mouthful, but let me, let me explain that and unpack what that means. 
Paul says, I do, again, verses 11 and 12, skipping into verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then in verse 13, you see the word for. Now that word in verse 13 is, is a little Greek particle, gar, which, which should be understood as because. Or if I was to expand that, I would say, this is the reason that I just said that. Or perhaps even to, to make even a, a longer understanding, but perhaps more clear, I will validate what I just said by what I'm going to say next. I'll validate what I just said by what I'm going to say next. In a court of law, a, a person, uh, an attorney, you've seen this on Perry Mason perhaps, you know, so, something will be said and, a, and a, an attorney jumps up and says, Your Honor, I object. Now, sometimes the Your Honor, I've been, I've been in court when this happens, they just say, no, sit down. In other words, the judge, no matter what their reasoning could be, no matter what their reasoning could be, uh, it's not going to be good enough. So you sit down. Other times, the judge may even say, on what basis are you objecting? And they, they may cite something. But if they don't cite it then, they'll often cite it on appeal. The reason that, objective was ma- that objection was made, because of this particular case law. You see, I'm, I'm backing up what I'm saying now because of some case law that's already on the books. And if you've watched any of these shows on TV, you've, you've probably seen this happen before. Well, Paul is validating the statement that he makes with a timeless principle, a principle that goes all the way back to original creation. I find it interesting, and I don't know if you noticed this in, in just observing the text, which I hope you do as you read through it. I hope you read carefully and thoughtfully. As you read the text, did you notice that Paul felt it necessary to validate what he said? Things don't change. People don't change. We, we wear different clothing. I, thought, I was thinking today, this is just me and my mind wandering. Uh, I was thinking today what it was like 100 years ago in Houston today. I was sitting in my office and taking a little bit of a break, and I thought, well, 100 years ago today, I would be sitting on the grass, not in my chair, because even five years ago today, that building wasn't there. You see, and then a hundred years ago, I, this church wasn't here. I assume it was a field. I don't know the history of Houston. Know if there were houses in this area or not. A hundred years ago, maybe fifty years ago, there certainly were. But you know what? I got to thinking. Attitudes really don't change. Sin patterns don't change. There was lust a hundred years ago today, and there's lust today. You know, there was arrogance and pride a hundred years ago. There's arrogance and pride today. There was nobility. And, and courage a hundred years ago, and there's nobility and courage today. And if there was a hundred years ago, there was also two thousand years ago. So it looks like, at least to me, in my humble opinion, the reason Paul had to validate this to this church at Ephesus is because they, he knew they would question it, just like many in our culture question it today. Now, what timeless principle does he use? He goes back to the very order of creation, and he says in verse thirteen, "For it was." Adam, who was first created, and then Eve. Now, let me, let me stop here and make sure you understand, and that's why I said it in the introduction. Adam and Eve were both created in the image of God. In fact, I'd like for you to hold here and turn back to Genesis chapter 127 and let me validate that, at least by showing you the passage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In fact, let's look at verse 26 first. This all happens on the sixth day of creation. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
And so we have creation of these land animals and, and the birds here. Uh, you all might also notice he said, let us make man in our image. Now some would hold that he's speaking of himself, God himself, and the angels. That's the us there. Uh, most evangelical Christians would, would balk at that view, and we see at least a primitive revelation of the Trinity here. Primitive, to be sure. It's not a proof of the Trinity, but it certainly allows for it in an Old Testament context. But it's verse 27 that I want you to see. And God created man in his own image. Now, that word for man there is more of a generic word for man, like we would use humans or mankind. That's not specifically the word for male. That word will come up. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, that's, that's a masculine pronoun, but, it's, but it, has mascul- it, it covers the entirety of the group that's spoken to. And we see that by the next phrase. Look carefully. Male and female, he created them. So Moses, right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted it clear from the very first chapter that both men and women were created in the image of God. Adam did not occupy a position of superiority to Eve. Before God, they were equals. Now, he had a position of superiority in the sense of his role. He was to rule the earth. And Eve, this is going to be key for for what's going to happen in about eight minutes from now, so listen carefully. Eve was created to to, to correspond with him, to, to, to fill up the weaknesses that the male would have, so that they might serve God. We studied this back in our Genesis series. That, that was the reason for Eve being created. Unfortunately, she didn't do that, did she? Unfortunately, the woman who was created to correspond to him, to fill up the weaknesses that he would have had, or to, uh, to be, uh, actually the text says, a helper corresponding to him. I don't want to really imply too many weaknesses in the pre-fall state. But, but to correspond and to help him serve or to worship well, actually, in reality, the outcome was the polar opposite, wasn't it? Instead of helping him worship well, she aided in his fall. And um, that is the reality. And Paul is going to come back and allude to that here. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Paul gives two reasons why women should conduct themselves in church meetings as he's just specified. These are the two points of validation. First, from creation, it was God's intention. Listen carefully. From creation, it was God's intention that the male should lead the female. He he reminds us that God made Adam first, and then made a suitable companion for him in Eve. God made Eve for Adam. He didn't make Adam for Eve. Adam was created first. But this implies no essential superiority of the male over the female. Not in any way. In fact, if you wanted to carry it out a little bit, it would, it would imply that there was something lacking in Adam. Although Adam came perfect from the hand of God, that's a theological thing that we don't really have a lot of time to go into tonight. But there is no superiority implied in the order of creation. However, this was the order. And it's God's choice. And and males should not stand up and, and act prideful because of it. And females should not feel inferior because of it. This was God's choice. This is the way he did that. God created Adam and Eve equals 
in the sense that they needed and complemented one another. However, God entrusted Adam with leadership over his wife. Eve was not responsible to God for Adam in the same sense that Adam was responsible to God for Eve. You follow me so far? I hope so. Now, the second reason comes in verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into the transgression. Now, this is a verse that is grossly misunderstood and applied. Let me, help, let me see if I can make sure that, that we don't misapply it because we don't misunderstand it. As part of the judgment on Eve at the fall, God confirmed or made permanent the leadership of the male over the female. It was a result of her deception by the serpent that Eve fell. Now, this is where we need to stop, because there are some that stop right there. They look at this passage, and they say that the reason why women shouldn't be Bible teachers is that they're more easily deceived by satanic ideas. Aside from that not being what this text says, and that's not what this text says, it's, it's totally ridiculous. Men are just as easily deceived by bad ideas as women. And those who think that Satan went after the woman because she was more easily deceived than Adam have not thought through the issue. Adam would have fallen just as quickly as Eve would have if Satan had gone directly after him. The reason that Satan had to go after Eve first, if you think through it theologically, is had Adam sinned first, think about this, had Adam sinned first, and he would have, he proved it by Satan, didn't even have to go directly after him. He went after him through a woman, and he fell. But had Adam sinned first, and then handed the fruit to the woman, she would be in a very theologically, judicially uncomfortable position. God had created Adam and put him in leadership over her. Adam's the one that would have handed her the fruit. Now she has a reason before God as an excuse. Because she's just saying, I just did what the man that you, that you put in charge of me said to do. So that's why, in my view, Satan had to go after the woman. He had to get her too. Otherwise he's got at least one being that's not going to fall. We'll talk about that more at a later time, I talked about it when we studied Genesis. So it doesn't mean that the woman is congenitally more susceptible to deception than the males. Um, and again, I think adequate evidence exists to support that this generalization is lacking. There are plenty of males that can be deceived. But positionally, it was because on that one occasion, Eve was deceived, and then God confirmed, because of that deception, both to her and her daughters, that they would be followers. Now, had the shoe been on the other foot, maybe the men would have had to be the followers. But that's not the way it happened. The, the women are said to be followers biblically. In the Ephesian church, some of the women had been led away, uh, led astray by false teachers. That's true. Um, but it was the false teachers who were first led astray by Satan. Okay, so again, males don't get don't get on your high horse thinking that uh, we can't be deceived, but the ladies, bless their little hearts, can be. That's not what this text is saying. It's still talking about order of creation. So there's our 
second point, Paul's point specifically in verse 14 is that this role reversal that caused such devastation. Remember in the fall, Eve became the leader and Adam became the follower. That role reversal at the beginning, watch, should not be repeated in the church. You see, that caused a whole lot of trouble. The, the amount of trouble that has been caused by the fall is, is so incredible that it can hardly be put into words. The fall was as devastating as anything could possibly be. We take it light too lightly sometimes. But the reason it happened was because there was a role reversal. Eve led her husband rather than her husband leading Eve. And, and Paul says that shouldn't happen in the church. When the teaching of the Word of God occurs in the assembly of the local church, and again, we're not speaking so much about parachurch ministries tonight, but in the teaching of the local church, it should be done by a qualified elder. And by elder, I mean one who is, uh, in, uh, occupies a position of leadership, who, who uh, possesses the characteristics as a present reality that we'll study in the next chapter, and who is apt to teach or qualified to teach. And if not a qualified elder, at least one who is a male who is qualified to teach in the, uh, in the sense of just the gift of teaching. Again, some people think that, uh, that females are to be under male authority in all areas of life, not just in church meetings. But, um, and they do that because Paul appeals to the, uh, he appeals to order of creation. Um, but that goes beyond what the text says here. And if you want to make that application, uh, do so at your own risk. I would say that. Now, verse 15, verse 15 is the verse, and we have just a few moments left, but verse 15 is the verse that does have some exegetical difficulties to it. Um, but let me see if I can explain it in a way uh, that, that might simplify it. Uh, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify with self-restraint. Perhaps the best explanation of this difficult verse is this. God promises a woman a life of fulfillment as mothers in the home, provided they walk with their Lord rather than as teachers and leaders in the church. You see what happens too many times? There's a total imbalance. We, we say to the women, you cannot do this. This is not your place. You receive instruction quietly. And then we turn around and leave it at that. And it's no wonder that women throughout the centuries have rebelled against that. Because you're making me a second class. Where's my fulfillment? Is there any way for me to be fulfilled as a person? And Paul says, absolutely, there's a way. Now, we need to be careful about this, and I wanna, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up now. The word, the word sozo here, which is the word for uh, preserved. Some, some of your text might say saved. It's not speaking of... Uh, eternal salvation. The word sozo is just simply a word that means to deliver from one state to another state. And sometimes, particularly in, when the concept is used in Hebrew Bible, it refers to rescue from danger. David would sometimes say, oh Lord, save me. Well, what he was asking salvation from was, abs was uh, either Absalom or, or Saul or a lion or a bear. He's asking for physical salvation, physical deliverance. Happens sometimes in the New Testament as well. So in my opinion, that's what's going on in James chapter 2, verse 14 and following. There is, a, there is a type of salvation that, that, that takes a person from a state of immaturity 
to a state of maturity in the Christian life that, takes, that, that rescues them from a position of immaturity and places them into a position of maturity. That's what James is speaking about in his epistle. And I believe that's what Paul's speaking about here. He's saying from a position in life where, where a female may feel unfulfilled to realizing that there is a position in life where she would be extremely fulfilled, um, provided. Not just because you're a female, not just because you're a mom, not just because you've had children, provided you continue in the faith, you continue in love, you continue in holiness with propriety. There are provisions for that to take place, but there is the larger provision of fulfillment. This doesn't mean that, um, that women have to have children in order to be fulfilled. That's not what this text is actually saying. This, this particular, what, what he uses here is a, is a figure of speech, a synecdoche, that, that takes a part for the whole. And the part that is mentioned is the bearing of children, but the whole is the whole role of being a fulfilled Christian woman. And you don't have to be the boss to be fulfilled. Now, many, many Christian women today are in the workplace, and that's, if that's what you choose to do, that's, that's fine. But that's not where you're going to find your ultimate fulfillment. You might find fulfillment there, particularly if you're single. That, that may be where you need it. But, but your ultimate, and, and make sure you understand the key word ultimate, your ultimate fulfillment is to be that corresponding partner for your husband so that the two of you together as a unit may worship well before the Lord. When it's all said and done, when this life is over and we're all standing in heaven, the ultimate fulfillment that you will enjoy has to do with the, the way that you function together with that husband. And again, there are, there are women who are not blessed in that way. For whatever reason, uh, they never get married or they've been married and they have a divorce or they have a poor marriage. It doesn't mean that you can't be fulfilled. Paul's not speaking in, in totally universal terms here, but he is, he is giving you the, um, uh, the contrast to being bitter and angry because you don't get to be a leader in the church. He's saying there is something that will fulfill you. And what, you, the, what will fulfill you is to, for you to function in that role that God originally designed the woman for, and that's to complete her husband. And that completion is not just for their own self-satisfaction. It is so that as a unit, they may then worship God more fully. And then, of course, you have children that are involved in that and nieces and nephews and, and the whole nine yards. But there is a, the provision that a certain behavior is, is adhered to. So Paul balanced what women should not do with what they can do. So many times in popular presentations of this, it's left with just the woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Or it's left with verse 14. And we forget verse 15 because it may be a little difficult to comprehend, mainly because we don't understand that word sozo, what it means to be delivered. But that's unfortunate. And women sometimes leave feeling that they can either do anything or nothing depending on the presentation. Some people say, well, women can do anything in a church. Some people say they can't do anything. And that's not what was to be said here. Now, as we end this chapter, Paul exhorts the males in the church to function as mediators between 
Christ, humankind's mediator with God, and his people. And we do that by praying. That's what the first part of this chapter was about. Males should lead the church in prayer. And it doesn't mean females can't pray, but males should, be, should exercise leadership in that role. And males teach. Males lead in the church. The women should concentrate on facilitating godliness in the church family as well as in their homes by cultivating good works and living godly lives. Now, the next time that we assemble, that uh, I know some of you are waiting for it tonight, it's not going to happen, where we, where we start looking at the qualifications for one who will exercise leadership in a church. But you're going to have to wait three or four weeks for that, and, uh, uh, but you'll get your, your opportunity to, um, to say, uh, uh, see, I told you so. But as we, as we leave this place, I hope that, uh, that there will be objectivity in the application of this passage, that our women should never feel inferior in any way. If anything, they should be placed upon a pedestal, and they are to be uh, respected in every way. And also, I would pray that our men do not feel a sense of arrogance uh, because of the order of creation. In his own image, he created them, both male and female.